religion, social justice, sex, science, apocalyptic thinking, man, we got it all right here. I'm John Schuck. My guest is Robert Jensen, an incredibly interesting thinker who teaches at the University of Texas. He's with me via Skype, and he is the author of a new book called We Are All Apocalyptic Now. Welcome, Dr. Jensen, to Religion for Life. Great to be with you, John. Thanks. I really enjoyed uh, the beginning sentence, responsible intellectuals need to think apocalyptically. Talk a little bit more about what you mean uh, by uh, thinking apocalyptically. The term is typically used uh, in a way that's associated with certain particular religious beliefs, especially Christian religious beliefs, about the end of the world, the second coming. Uh, Apocalypse is often taken as a synonym for those beliefs. But when we go back to the word, uh, apocalypse is Greek and revelation is Latin, they both mean the same thing, which is a kind of coming to clarity, a, literally a lifting of the veil. The sense of thinking apocalyptically or thinking in terms of revelation, to me, is about pushing aside all of the things that can obscure our ability to see the world clearly and actually facing things as they are. And that's what I mean I like the sense of urgency that comes with the term apocalyptic, and I also want to sort of fight for the meaning of the term. And I think that's important because in every religious tradition, as well as other secular kinds of traditions, there's often a struggle for language. Who gets to define terms? And I'm I'm a big fan of the term apocalyptic, and I want to fight for how we define it. Well, in terms of unveiling, what what uh, can you name some of the veils uh, that keep us from seeing our situation clearly? Well, let's just talk about the one particular system uh, within the human family, uh, our economic system. You know, whatever one's political position, one has to understand that an economic system has a lot to do with how a society is structured. And in the world we live in, the global economy is defined by a certain conception of capitalism. And that conception of capitalism has become so dominant that most people think it's kind of beyond critique. It's simply the way the world is. But that economic system that we call capitalism has produced a world in which about half the world's population lives in abject poverty. Um, World Bank figures suggest that about half the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day. About a billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day. Well, that state of affairs, you know, an economy that leaves half the world's population in poverty, clearly violates any moral system. And I don't care what moral system one claims, whether it's theological or secular or what version of uh, religion one adheres to. That kind of inequality is simply morally unacceptable. And if we're going to take our moral principles seriously, that means we have to be willing to challenge the systems that produce immoral consequences. And I think that means we have to challenge capitalism. Now, that's often associated with a kind of wild-eyed radicalism. But I want to suggest that, number one, there's probably nothing wrong with wild-eyed radicalism, but even a, a sober, rather conservative point of view would require us to rethink our economic system. On the larger planetary scale, we have to recognize that the way human life is structured today is rapidly drawing down the ecological capital of the planet well beyond replacement levels, which means that we are on a a path to 
planetary collapse. Again, that sounds kind of crazy and wild-eyed, but I think a, a sober reading of the data that is coming out of the sciences tells us, in fact, that is what's happening. And so this lifting of the veil or coming to clarity is, to a large degree, I think, about being willing to confront the consequences of the systems that structure our lives. And that's often the hardest thing to do in any society, is to step back and both see and then be willing to critique the systems, because those systems do become taken for granted. And that's what I think is our main task today in, in the realm of critical thinking. And those systems themselves uh, actually, of course, provide the veil. They don't want you to look beneath the curtain. Absolutely. And and with talking about capitalism, uh, not only did they want to keep us from thinking critically, there's a tremendous amount of money directed toward that very activity. It's called advertising, marketing, public relations. All of these are what I kind of loosely call the propaganda industries. And I don't mean that simply to be provocative, but because, in fact, if you look at advertising, marketing, PR, they're designed not to get us to think critically, but to get us to participate in a system without thinking critically. And that's one of the, you know, the great contradictions of the contemporary world. We keep saying we want critical thinkers, and then we accept a system that undermines that critical thinking. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, what, what you see and uh, what we might see is kind of an, an obvious situation of our world right now. We have 7 billion people on the planet, which has uh, increased by uh, almost sevenfold since my father was born in 1918. Uh, we're stretching all of the limits of the planet. We, we've are top peaked uh, in terms of extraction rates on, on oil. Uh, it looks like we're now we're at climate change, and yet we seem to think that we are still headed for a Jetson's future. What is it uh, that keeps us in denial? Well, one thing is obviously the overwhelming scope of the problems. We're no longer talking about discrete environmental problems, you know, a dirty river here or smog in a particular city. We're talking about uh, a planetary crisis. Uh, scientists are talking about tipping points where if we go much further, we may be beyond recovery. Uh, we're talking about both resource problems and the problems that come with using those resources. And it's clear there's no easy fix to any of this. And I think sometimes when there are no straightforward answers, people are more likely to deny the problems. But there's another, I, I think, element to this, and it's what many people have called the, the technological fundamentalism of contemporary culture. And by that, we mean the, the belief that whatever problems we do face can be fixed by the application of high energy, high technology, essentially that we will invent our way out of every problem we face. The irony of that is people believe we'll even invent our way out of the problems that are caused by high energy, high technology. And that's where the, I think the particular pathology of technological fundamentalism comes in, that we create these new technologies that are dependent on the very dense energy and coal, oil, and natural gas. And then when those technologies themselves cause trouble, like climate change, for instance, we assume that we can invent ways with more technology and energy to solve the problems. And I think that technological fundamentalism really has a grip on the modern world. In fact, I think it's a far deeper and in some ways more dangerous fundamentalism than any religious fundamentalism or any 
economic fundamentalism or any national fundamentalism. It's really this technological fundamentalism, this certainty that we are going to invent our way out of problems that's at the core of, I think, the the denial that you're talking about. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Professor Robert Jensen, uh, teaches journalism at uh, University of Texas in Austin and the author of We Are All Apocalyptic Now, our, on the responsibilities of teaching, preaching, reporting, writing, and speaking out, and arguing for our lives, another book uh, that subtitled A User's Guide to Constructive Dialogue. And as you're talking about technological fundamentalism, there's also a sense in which, I'm speaking from my own profession, uh, that there's a lot of pressure to be hopeful, to be positive, to be optimistic, that um, if we're not optimistic or positive, uh, that's even the biggest heresy of all, uh, that somehow you just got to, yeah, that if we are apocalyptic, as you say, unveiling what's really going on, uh, we might uh, be self-fulfilling our own prophecy. What would you say to, to that? Well, certainly some people take uh, this apocalyptic thinking into into areas that aren't productive. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, you hear about the the doomers, the people who think we're doomed and nothing can be done. Well, it may be that in fact we are doomed, that is that modern high energy society is doomed, but that doesn't mean nothing can be done. We can always work to create deeper and richer connections between human beings. We can start to in, inquire into ways to lower our ecological footprint. Whether or not we're talking about it in mainstream society very often, a lot of people feel this kind of apocalyptic future. I talk to people all the time when I, let's say, make a public presentation about this, and they come up to me afterwards and they say, I'm so glad to hear you speak this way because I feel it deeply in my bones, but I can't find spaces to talk about it. I hear often from people who say they want to have these conversations, but when they try to bring it up, they are, you know, brushed aside or or even laughed at or dismissed. And so whether or not we want to face these things, we're going to have to. And I think more and more people want to face them, that they want to deal with that kind of anxiety that modern life produces. So there are certainly ways that we can take apocalyptic thinking into very unproductive paths, but those are not the only ways that we have to, to, to move. And, and I think this question of hope is at the center of it. Um, I often jokingly say it, it takes a lot of intellectual honesty and courage to give up on hope. And by that, I don't mean you know to give up hope completely. I don't mean to become nihilistic or antisocial. I mean to realize that hope doesn't have to mean a belief in unrealistic solutions, that we can face reality, retain our humanity, and start to do the really difficult work of seriously restructuring the way we live. That's where the hope is. And I don't think hope is something you you give to other people. I don't think you know that we have an obligation to be hopeful so that other people will feel better. I think hope comes from demonstrating that we're capable of facing the truth and responding as human beings and retaining our our sense of loyalty to each other, our sense of moral obligation to each other. That's where I think the hope comes. It's in facing the truth and still going forward every day to try to deepen our own sense of humanity and make connections with others. What is often billed as hope is we've got to keep cars running. 
that yeah. what, that kind of thing. You're talking, of course, that that type of hope is really misguided. That that future has no future, uh, yeah. and we have to I, find a new way to find a future for humanity to live and and work and be together. Absolutely, I think that's a kind of false hope. Uh, it's almost a kind of snake oil sales mm-hmm. job to try and allow people to believe that we can continue on this path simply because we find it comfortable to continue on this path. That is not hope. That's actually, I think, a denial of hope in the sense that it's a denial of our belief in our own capacity to change. And we know human beings have the capacity to change. I think we just have to buck up and be willing to to go down that road. And, uh, and of course, the anxiety. You talk about that in, in both of your books, Arguing for Our Lives and We Are Apocalyptic Now, of uh, that anxiety that keeps us immobilized. And you talk about moving from anxiety to anguish. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's, it's meant with a kind of tongue-in-cheek because the anxiety we're talking about, as I said, I think is felt by a lot of people. And, and here we don't mean just personal anxiety. You know, I'm anxious about my job or my relationship. We're talking about a much deeper anxiety that's based in the recognition that the systems we live in, in fact, can't go on indefinitely. And the argument I make, and again, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, is that you have to, if you want to give up that anxiety, you have to embrace the anguish, the underlying sense of grief mm-hmm. that comes when human societies move into new eras. And I think that that grief is real, and you can't you can't get through it except by getting through it. Uh, now, a lot of people would say, oh, great, you want me to give up my anxiety and, and just be living with constant grief. And I realize that doesn't sound like much of a bargain, but I can only speak for myself that in my own life, um, that in fact was what allowed me to move forward, that when I kind of embraced that anguish and allowed myself to feel that grief, I found that in fact I could move forward. Uh, you know, that. I started thinking about this a long time ago when a very good friend of mine who I think saw a lot of these questions much clearer than I ever did told me that he woke up every morning in a state of profound grief. And for him, what that meant was acknowledging the the death of the living world around him and, and instead of giving into it or giving up, moving forward. But he did that every day aware of that grief. Uh, and in some sense, that shouldn't be hard to understand. After all, we all recognize our own mortality. I'm sure you thought about this, John. You're going to die someday. You're aware of that, yes? Yes. Yeah, well, so am I. And it doesn't paralyze me. I don't get up every day and say, oh, what's the point? I'm going to die someday anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, we have an, a personal experience of living with a sense of grief, with knowing not only that we are mortal, but that everybody we love is mortal, <laughs> and that everything we have loved in our lives will someday die. Well, if we can cope with that at the individual level, there's no reason we can't cope with it at a a sort of planetary level. And I think that's really the emotional work of the world. Um, And it's not easy. I'm not suggesting this is something we can be glib about. But I think unless we're talking about it collectively, we're not going to be able to individually work our way through it. This is something that requires a lot of conversation. And, And unfortunately for so many people, they don't have places where this conversation is possible. And that's part of the reason I'm writing and speaking a lot about this is I want to help people create spaces where these kind of deep senses of grief can be spoken. And do you find uh, institutions, 
uh, at, at all helpful in this? I'm thinking of the big ones, the media, church, political institutions, um, are in, in terms of allowing for space for this type of both critical thinking and, uh, and, and grief, grief enabling. Well, unfortunately, the institutions that should be helping us do this are in fact not only not helping us, but are often impediments. You mentioned the media. The media is a huge impediment to this, especially the part of the media that is advertising supported, because of course advertisers don't want anybody thinking about limits or about change in the way we're talking about it. I don't think the educational system is very good in this sense. Even our best universities seem committed to avoiding some of these questions. I often think about the campus I'm on, the University of Texas, where the most prominent unit of the college is the business school, and the business school is dedicated to making sure we never think about this. Hmm. Uh, churches are the place where I think there's some hope. Churches are the place we should be able to come to terms with this. And I think in some congregations, people are are doing that. They're creating that kind of space. But I think as institutions, the churches have failed us as well. This is one of those moments where I don't think we can look to any of the institutions that are supposed to help us and expect them to do that. We can sometimes kind of hijack those institutions. I try to do that in the classroom. Uh, people use media in creative ways. People take seriously the commitments of church and theology and, and try to turn it toward these kinds of conversations. So I don't want to give up on the institutions completely because they do give us sometimes space, resources to do this. But we can't expect the leadership of those institutions to be, I think, helping us all that much in this endeavor. Now, one of the things you say that we need to talk about are the things that are often socially taboo, politics and religion, um, and, and for, for everyone to be talking about politics and religion. And you give some a nice brief definition of both of those. Can you define politics and religion briefly and tell us why we need to be talking about it and how? I think that's the most important step, because if politics means only what goes on in Washington, D.C., uh, I don't want to be part of that. Most Decent people don't want to be part of that mm -hmm. because they can see how politics has been turned toward basically the interests of the wealthy and the powerful. But politics means more than that. Politics basically is the play of power in a society. Anytime there is a society, there is a distribution of power, a way decisions are made. Some people have power to make decisions. Some people don't. And we can be part of that politics and, and try to affect the politics by – doing more than just voting or more than participating in the two-party system. Many people are involved in grassroots political organizing, uh, sometimes around specific issues of, let's say, economic justice or environmental concerns. But whatever we're, we're drawn to, whatever issues we care about, we have to remember this is always about taking control of our own lives and trying to, in fact, create a political system where ordinary people have a meaningful role in the formation of public policy. And there are lots of different ways to do that that don't involve simply capitulating to the two-party electoral system. On the question of religion, I tend to think of religion broadly. That term also has negative connotations for a lot of people, especially people who've been in very repressive denominations, for instance. But to me, religion is just that place where we ask the fundamental question, what does it mean to be a human being? Mm -hmm. You know, we are biological creatures and we can understand ourselves through science to some degree. But the questions that have long animated the human human imagination, 
where do we come from, what happens when we die, and most centrally, what should we be while we are here? What does it mean to be human? Uh, it, it seems to me that those are the questions for religion. And I, I don't mean simply traditional religion and denominations. I mean people of conscience and goodwill who want to engage in that conversation. If we define politics as the struggle to control our own lives and religion as the conversation about what it means to be human, to me, those are inviting topics. In fact, those are the most important topics in the world. I mean, there's lots of other things to talk about. People may enjoy the arts or, or football or whatever it might be. But these questions about power and questions about meaning are really what make human life worthwhile. And to me, they're the most exciting questions in the world. I really like the way you defined uh, both of those terms, and I'm thinking, especially with religion, uh, with my own field, as, as so often it seems to be co-opted by uh, certain dogmas uh, uh, about supernaturalism or, or whatever. Uh, but you even use the word theology, and I don't think you're necessarily talking about God or gods in that. You're really talking about, again, what it means to be a human being, but not just abstractly, uh, not just kind of from a distance, but also with a sense of commitment and engagement. Um, and that, that's what I got from your book, is, and that's what I hear your critique also on on the myth of neutrality, that we can think that we can just kind of be um, at a distance from it, an objective about it, but really to, to be a human being, especially in our time, we have to be engaged in life. Absolutely, and I think that's the, the way to think about religion, about theology, about the common life. It's not really about a set of doctrines. You know, a lot of religion has been reduced to uh, the willingness to say that you believe a certain set of doctrinal assertions. But to me, that can't ever be the core of religion. Religion is about how we live. And it's not so much adhering to a set of doctrines as it is being open to the struggle and the challenge from others about how we live. And so for me, religion, I happen to come out of the Christian tradition and attend a Christian church, but it's a Christian church with a very different sense of theology that's more about that set of living questions than about a set of dead dogmas. Uh, that's a way we can redefine religion. And whether or not it involves traditional notions of God or not, I think we have to recognize that the most important function of the word God is to remind us of what we don't know and what we can't control. When people ask me, for instance, do I believe in God, my response is always the same, is Tell me what you mean by the term God. And that is an invitation to a conversation, not a command to recite doctrine. And, and to me, that's the excitement of religion. And I'll admit, for most of my adult life, I stayed away from religion precisely because I thought it was nothing but an institution demanding that I accept certain doctrines. But when I found out that there were other kinds of people engaged in theology. There were congregations that were more interested in the questions, that there were people actually from my Christian tradition who see the world the way that you're talking about, and I think the way you do. Well, then a whole new arena opened up. Uh, people often are surprised that I identify as a Christian because they tend to think of that in very narrow terms. But I think... Um, there are very creative and exciting ways to explore any particular faith tradition, whether it's Islam or Christianity or Buddhism. They all should be seen as living questions rather than, than uh, rigid dogma, I think. And 
as we move into this time of transition, or well, let's say the word, the collapse of industrial civilization, whether it's, uh, as we're, we're in, we're probably, uh, you quote uh, James Howard Kunstler that we're in the zone now. Uh, we yeah. see our institutions uh, crumbling and failing around us. Uh, that, that as we participate in this, we, we need uh, critical thinking, religious thinking, uh, political thinking more than ever. Now, we need to engage that, uh, lift the veil rather than rather than deny it. Um, and as I'm also thinking, though, it can be very overwhelming. And I kind of wonder, how, how do you handle uh, the grief of all that? Have you found a way to kind of reinvent yourself uh, in terms of, of, of living on the cusp? Well, I think there are really three components to this. One is an intellectual component. Now, I happen to be a university professor, so I have a lot of time and space to think about these things. But one doesn't have to be a professional academic to read and to try to come to terms with this. And I think we all need to do that. Um, reading about climate change, reading about resource depletion, reading about toxicity. These are things that we have to come to terms with. Another component, of course, is emotional. And I think we we can do that partly through the conversation we're talking about. Also, I think the arts are very important. Uh, I happen to be married to a singer-songwriter who who does write quite a bit about these questions. And so I, I feel very lucky that I, I'm living with someone with whom I can have that conversation and who brings that more creative uh, component to it. But in addition to the intellectual and the emotional creative aspects, there's also a, a crucial aspect of action. Part of what keeps me from going crazy, if if you'll accept for arguments purposes that I'm not crazy, some people <laughs> might dispute that, including some of my faculty colleagues, but I don't feel crazy. And I think the reason I don't feel crazy every day, even though I live with this kind of question, is because I'm involved in several community organizations that are trying to do good in the world, that look at these overwhelming crises, but still continue the work of promoting economic justice, promoting racial justice, promoting gender justice, and also looking at new ways to to be in relationship to the earth. So just to give you a quick example, we have a community center here in Austin, Texas, where I work. 5604 Mainer is the name of it. And we have an immigrant worker justice group trying to deal with the most um, egregious examples of the exploitation of workers. We have a cooperation Texas group that's trying to help spur the development of worker cooperatives, worker-owned, worker-managed businesses. We have a backyard garden project that's a teaching garden where young people can come in and connect sometimes for the first time to the earth. Well, no one of those projects is going to turn this society around, but they are places where people of conscience come together, like-minded people come together, and we not only work on specific political projects, we also are building a community. And I think all of that is what helps me stay focused on what we're calling, you know, this this future that's going to be defined by collapse, but not give in to the kind of despair that is so common when people do face difficult situations. So, you know, reading, thinking and emoting and and talking, but also just working together, I think are ways people can can stay afloat. Sounds good. Robert Jensen, uh, thank you for your work, and thank you for uh, being with me today on Religion for Life. Great. Thanks for a wonderful conversation. Robert Jensen is the author of We Are All Apocalyptic Now on the Responsibilities of Teaching, Preaching, Reporting, Writing, and Speaking Out. 
You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well.